This evening we conclude our look at the seven churches of Revelation. The last two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, contain within them seven addresses to seven churches that Jesus Christ specifically addresses, commending them for those things that are honorable, correcting them for those things that are in need of correction. At the end of each address, we are given this invitation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are meant to learn from these addresses, these examples. We are meant to examine ourselves individually and collectively as a local church body in the light of these seven addresses. I think these last two chapters are two of the most important chapters of the book of Revelation because they so specifically address us today. And as we come to the conclusion, I wish I could say that we've saved the best for last. But that's not the case. As we conclude, we come to the city of Laodicea, a wealthy city, known for its economics, known for its banking uh, interests, known for its ability to manufacture, known for its ability to produce and to create medical treatments that were advanced at that time, more advanced than many of the cities in that region. And in the city of Laodicea, we find a church, the seventh of the seven, the church of Laodicea. And many know this church from their personal Bible studies, or maybe the precope at the beginning of this church's address would state the lukewarm church. But what I've discovered is though, even though that is a proper rendering of a condition of, and one aspect of the condition of the church there in Laodicea, often we don't understand what it means to be lukewarm. Often it is equated to the spiritual temperature of the church with the range being hot or cold and then being lukewarm somewhere in the middle. But in actuality, the problem of them being lukewarm was a symptom of a greater disease. It was merely a symptom of a greater disease within their midst. And that disease is the disease of self-sufficiency. Have you ever heard lines like this? Do they sound familiar to you? Well, God helps those who helps themselves. Or have you ever heard, pull yourself together? Or if you want something done, do it yourself. Or believe in yourself. Or look out for number one. These are all phrases that we are all too common with here in the United States of America. And though there's a degree and a level of truth within them, there's also a great danger that all of them contain when it comes to our Christian faith. And as a result, if we are not aware of that danger, we could fall into the same predicament that the church of Laodicea fell into, and that was the predicament of self-sufficiency. 
Let me read this paragraph to you from one of my favorite pastors, Chuck Swindoll. While ancient pagans had hundreds of false gods to choose from, modern pagans have one false god that controls their life, and that is self. Self-expression, self-confidence, self-worth, self-reliance, these concepts all resolve around the myth that human beings have an inexhaustible source of strength within themselves. Such worthy people, of course, have trouble attributing all worth to God, which is the very definition of worship. That was the disease that had eroded the spiritual condition of the church of Laodicea. It was self, self-sufficiency, self-expression, self-confident, self-worth, self-reliance. These are oxymorons when they come in, into equating into our faith in Jesus Christ. From the beginning, man has attempted to be like God and therefore he could be independent from God. Understand that. Man's desire to be like God would allow him his independence from God. That's why he has embarked on that endeavor from the beginning. That is how Satan came at God's creation. You can be like God. And in saying that, he is saying you then can be independent from God. Self is the bridge that carries us from dependency to independency in our relationship to God. And the city of Laodicea prided itself on self. Self was the banner cry, the banner motto of that particular city. Economically, no other city stood as strongly as the city of Laodicea. They were known for their banking. It's like looking to New York City and looking to Wall Street, known for its banking. Or a country around the world, you would look to Switzerland, known for its banking and its financial uh, endeavors. Laodicea was the same way. For their economic stability and growth was man, uh, based upon manufacturing. Why is that important? Because manufacturing could guarantee cash revenue where the work of agriculture would sometimes be spotty, wouldn't it? If you have a bad crop one year or if you have um, a, a series of storms that pass through your region and the seeds do not take and they, then the crops are minimal at best, you can have a very difficult economic year if your year is dependent solely on that individual harvest. But Laodicea, they discovered that manufacturing is something that they could do continuously regardless of the weather. And they found themselves to be extremely proficient in the manufacturing of this sleek black wool clothing. And it allowed them for their economic advancement. They were so economically independent that in 60 AD the entire city was laid waste by an earthquake. 
And Laodicea was offered funds from the imperial government, that is, of course, Rome, and they refused those funds and were able to rebuild the city solely upon the economics and the money in which they had accumulated and the banking industry there within the city. This is unprecedented at this time in history, and they were able to do it. Then it came to Medically where their economic advancements and the banking community attracted some of the most intellectual people of the region. It was a place where someone could come and expand and brought in new ideas. And they discovered certain powders that came down from the Phrygian mountain that they were able to grind up, put into an ointment, and use In the eyes of people, the most sensitive region of the body was the eye of the individual at that time. And they found a salve that was able to help people through some of the most common difficulties. Now, you and I probably all have experienced or know someone who has experienced red eye. We also know it as pink eye. Conjunctive-itis, right? Do you know conjunctivitis in that culture often led to the loss of sight within the individual? This powder was had within it antibiotic traits that killed the bacteria, killed the virus, and was able to restore the eye. Now that was terrific at that time. Fantastic. But you can see on how all of these advancements and the prosperity that it produced and the motto of the city that allowed it to raise from the ruins of the earthquake, independently of help from the imperial government, the Roman Empire, would all stain within it a self-independence, wouldn't it? Within that prosperity. They did have a problem, though. And it was a very unique problem. Through all their advancements, the one problem that they had was the problem of bringing water to the city. Because of where they were, they had to bring water in from one of two places, Hierapolis or Colossae. And each of those places presented difficulties, to say the best. The waters from Hierapolis came from natural hot springs, Hot springs are wonderful, right? When you want them and need them, they're fantastic. But I don't know many people who go there for a refreshing drink of water, do you? Ew. And the engineers of Laodicea were so advanced that they made an aqueduct system. We have a picture of it, if Brian will show you. It looks like a square box with a tube in the middle. And this was their piping. And as the water traveled through this piping to the city of Laodicea, they discovered that it got cooler, but not cool. And so it was always tepid when it arrived there in Laodicea. And they didn't have freezers, they didn't have refrigerators, and they didn't have water coolers, and they were always stuck with this lukewarm water. So the engineers looked to the other direction and they found Colossae, which had natural spring water that was very cool. 
So they then took aqueducts and they went that way towards the city of Colossus in the same fashion and brought the cool water down from Colossae, but to only discover that the cool water, by the time it went as far as it went, was no longer cool. It was tepid. It was lukewarm. And so they had a problem. And the language of that problem is used in the examples in which Jesus addresses them. So you have this self-sufficient, prideful city containing a self-sufficient, prideful church. There are no commendations. There's nothing that is being approved of here at the city. Jesus addresses the city, and then we discover that in the accusation towards the city and within the admonishment towards the city, we discover that Jesus is on the outside of the church looking in. And I believe that what we see presented to us this evening is a great danger for all of us who live in a society of prosperity. It is a difficulty and a temptation that we must wrestle with that those in the rest of the world who don't have that privilege don't face. If you read the Old Testament, you'll often discover that some of the worst times in the history of the nation of Israel is when they were prospering. It's difficult to be humble when you are prospering. It's difficult to become and stay uh, dependent upon God when you are prospering. Self has a tendency to continually rise its ugly head within you when you find yourself in a place of what I would call um, false independence from God. But as we begin this evening, we address the city of Laodicea and the church that there is within it. And Jesus addresses them the last time he will address himself to the seven churches. And he begins in verse 14. And let us read our passage before we look at it more closely together this evening. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. And I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may, be, that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those who I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
As one wrote, Christ's messages to the seven churches in Asia come to a close with a tragic letter to a self-sufficient, self-righteous, self-serving church in Laodicea. He begins by addressing them and identifying himself in three ways. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. The Amen means so be it. It is a representation of the uh, sovereignty of God that there is no one higher than Him. It is a derivative of a verse that we find in Isaiah 65, 16, where Isaiah writes, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by God, the true, uh, the God of truth. Or the Hebrew word could be translated the God of Amen. He who has takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth or the God of Amen, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. It is that he is the final authority, the final say, sovereign over all things. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the perfect embodiment of all that is faithful and that all that is true in the Heavenly Father. Christ is the perfect representation of that to His creation. He is faithful to the end. He is true in and throughout, meaning that there is no one like Him, that He is unique, and that He is perfect. The word, the beginning of God's creation, has caused confusion in many uh, because it, in, it seems to indicate that Christ himself was created, which we know is a theological impossibility. For John clearly tells us that Christ was in the beginning with God. He is an eternal being, eternally from past to eternally into the future. The eternal nature of God is found in this because the word beginning in the Greek can be the prime source of God's creation. All things that were created were created through Jesus Christ. He was the beginning of it all. It originated within Him. We find no approval in this letter. And in verse 15 we go immediately to the accusation where we discover, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Again, this has to be a parallel illustration used uh, by Jesus that all would have been familiar with concerning the uh, issue that they had with their water. Their water was constantly tepid in nature. It was disgusting. And people knew it was disgusting. You know, someone could have opened a bottled water store here in Laodicea and made a mint if that were the case. Now they are being equated with the disgustedness of the water and how just horrific it was. Some here believe that it is indicating their spiritual temperature that they weren't on fire for the Lord, hot, or their hearts were not cold towards the Lord, or had become cold towards the Lord. The lukewarm then would indicate an indifference towards God, which I think is absolutely equated within this understanding of the word lukewarm and its application. They were indifferent to God. They were no use to God. 
they weren't helpful in any way to God. But understand that the word hot and cold that are used here in the Greek are both in the positive sense. And one being cold would be obviously one whose heart had grown cold or either one who had uh, never been saved. And so I believe that he is saying that either cold or hot would be better than what you are here because cold would have been refreshing and warm would have been great for the medication and for medical purposes. But you are neither in this regard. You are useless. That's what he is saying here. And it is known throughout the entire region just as useless as the lukewarm water is and how undesirable it is is how undesirable you are. What a, what a rebuke. That's exactly what I believe he is saying. As one commentator wrote, he said, Robert Mounts from his favorite commentary on the book of Revelation, in an important article he said that often they argue that the adjectives for hot and cold and lukewarm are not to be taken as describing the spiritual fervor or lack of it of the people. In contrast is between the hot medicinal waters of Hierapolis and the cold and pure waters of Colossae. Thus the church in Laodicea was providing neither refreshment nor uh, for the spiritual weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. It was totally ineffective and thus distasteful to the Lord. On this interpretation, the church is not being called to a task for its spiritual temperature, but for the barrenness of his work, of their works. They were useless to God. In verse 17, I believe we discover the reason for their usefulness, uselessness. And that was because they had the wrong perception of themselves. Their self had inflated their own perception of themselves and the Lord is now correcting them. They saw themselves one way, but the Lord saw them completely differently. And that is what we must take away from our time together. Is that they had an opinion of themselves and the Lord is correcting that opinion, that perception of themselves in these very words. Verse 17. For you say I am rich and I have prospered and in need of nothing. Not realizing, and that's, that's the word in the Greek that can resemble the perception, the personal perception that they had of themselves. You don't realize, you don't perceive that you are wretched. And that word wretched is great because it can also be translated pathetic. You are pathetic Pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Talk about a contrast. How did they get it so wrong? How could they ever have such an inflated opinion of themselves, an image of themselves? And undoubtedly, we know that what the Lord is seeing is correct. And what the Lord is stating is accurate. And so there is no doubt in our minds concerning who is right and who is wrong. The question that I have when I read such a thing is, how did it get to such a point? And I believe that the dangers of prosperity were the bedrock, the the ground in which this self uh, stemmed from and brewed from and, and grew from. 
And as a result, now they self had overwhelmed them, and now they have a completely false picture of themselves. Think about how prevalent self is in our own personal country. Self is everything here in the United States of America. In fact, you can find a magazine called Self. At least they admit it. The point is, is that self has been so um, exalted here in the United States of America, the first question that I would ask myself then is, do we have an inflated opinion of ourselves? Uh, Does God see us the same way we see ourselves? No. What may look very healthy in actuality could be very what? Sick. And what could be very, what appears to be very sick in the eyes of the Lord could be very healthy in the sense that the world has deemed something sick or irrelevant in the eyes of the Lord. We find it out to be just the opposite. In fact, remember the church of Smyrna. They thought they were nothing. They thought they were, they had nothing because they had nothing. They were poverty stricken. And the Lord said, you are rich in my eyes. Whose opinion matters? Ours or Christ's? As Christians, whose opinions, whose opinion matters? This is why God has given us his word. His word is something that we can read to truly see ourselves properly. We've given, we have been given the example of Jesus Christ. We've been given the life of Jesus Christ to be the uh, standard for us all. But it is the word of God that we now have within our possession that we can read that brings us always back to the reality of who we actually are in Jesus Christ. And understand that the world is looking for strength. The the world is looking for self-confidence and self-reliance. The world is looking to correct the woes and the ills of the society by uh, elevating self-esteem. Just the opposite of what we actually need because the Bible then tells us those who are weak, then he is strong. When we are faithless, that's when he is faithful. It's in those moments when we see ourselves truly and we look at ourselves objectively, then we can understand our humility. And in that humility is the method in which God raises us as He exalts us. Their self had clouded everything. Their self-perception, their self-worth, their self-esteem, their self-reliance had totally, totally blinded them to the reality of their own personal condition. That, That scares me to death. Especially today. Again, we live in a society that everything around us is asking us to exalt self. And yet we see here that they felt that they were in need of nothing. That phrase just troubles me. It's it's like someone coming to you and saying, can I pray for you? I'm in need of nothing. For yesterday I arrived. 
All is good. Perfect. Wow. Do I have a short-sighted view of myself? That's exactly what they're saying here. Their attitude of the heart was that before God they were not in need of anything, but he reminds them of their reality. You are pathetic. I love that. You are pitiable. You are poor. You are blind. You are naked. Talk about the king with no clothes. They thought they had everything. And yet they had nothing. In verse 18 he says, I counseled you. I advised you. I I requested of you. I wanted you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And that was a statement that was used for the most precious gold you could own that was the most valuable. One refined by fire, purified and totally pure in its content. So that you truly may be rich. And he's, of course, talking about the righteousness of Christ. And the white garments so that you may be clothed, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And the salve that you anoint your eyes, you should have gotten mine. And the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may truly see. Again, that's what I want us to grasp tonight. How wrong they were. Blinded by self, blinded by pride, blinded by their own personal ability. And they were inaccurately assuming that they were something that they were not. Jesus rebukes them. Notice that in verse 18, the grace of God is displayed. I wanted to give you. I wanted you to buy for me. And the only way they could was by grace and by faith. That's the only way they could. That's all that mattered. But they, were, they refused. In verse 19 he said, Those whom I love understand I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The Proverbs writes, the proverb writer writes to us, Solomon, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-one through 32 But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. But because they had such a misunderstanding of who they were before God and their, and their personal condition, they didn't seek repentance. They felt they had no need for it. And throughout it all, there is this arrogance and indifference that continues to come to the surface. And as a result, they were unwilling to accept what God had for them. In verse 19, we have three words that I want you to notice. I'm sorry, two are in 19. Zealous and repent are both imperatives in the Greek. They are commands of God. Be zealous, stop what you are doing, repent, and behold, and and look at what I am at and where I am standing and understand that I am not within your mists. 
There is no warning of the removal of a lampstand here, for we find and discover in verse 20 that Jesus wasn't even amongst them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Not only does this say and tell us that Christ was not in the midst of this church. Their indifference, their pride, their self-sufficiency had moved him out. They were continuing on in their own ability. And as a result, God wasn't even a part of what they were doing. He was on the outside. Now often, this verse is used in an evangelistic method, stating that Jesus stands on the Uh, at the door of the heart and knocks and he who will open it he'll come in and dine with him and it's an appeal for salvation but this is speaking to a church it is speaking to a church now there is a personal element of it but it's an indictment listen to what he says here behold I stand at the door and knock he's outside It's incredible to me that Christ would even place himself in such a position where he's graciously knocking on the door and giving ample opportunity to rejoin fellowship with him. But listen to what he says next. If anyone hears my voice, what does that tell you? There isn't even a remnant here. There isn't even a remnant amongst this church. If anybody, oh, anybody would let me in, I would come in to the church. He is saying this church felt that they had no need for God. That's what they're saying here. And there wasn't even a remnant. There wasn't even those amongst them that had not defiled themselves. We don't even get that here. But we discover that he is on the outside looking in. And even though that is true, there's an invitation once again. It is amazing to me, as one wrote, in their blind self-sufficiency that they had, as it were, excommunicated the risen Lord from their congregation. In an act of unbelievable consension, he requested permission to enter and reestablish fellowship. I don't know about you, but if you're into defiling your Bibles, you would write there grace, grace, and more grace. And in verse 21, he even gives a promise, again, inviting them to repent. And the one who conquers, notice what he says here, and the one who conquers or overcome, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Not a throne, but his throne. A victory will be had like never before. If one is able to overcome such things, I will allow him to sit down on my, with me, on my throne. Such an appeal tells me this. Such an appeal tells me this. 
that overcoming self must be one of the most difficult things to do. Think about that. In such contrast, in such a great appeal, self must be incredibly difficult to overcome. As Paul wrote about this victory, he said this in 2 Timothy 2, 10-13, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And he goes on to say, This saying is trustworthy. For if we had died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then we are offered this invitation to consider ourselves. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Recently, a pastor made it clear that if the financial contributions ever stopped within his church, that his church would stop. That the work of God would stop. And he used it in such a way, of course, to to manipulate the giving of the congregation. There are those who are writing books concerning the planting of churches here in the United States of America, and they have agreed that unless you begin with a bank account of $250,000, you shouldn't even proceed. If that were the case, we would still be waiting 20 years God's church is never built upon money. God's church is never built upon money. It's never built upon the might and power and the ability of the personal individual. For Zechariah clearly teaches us, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God will provide the things that are necessary when they are necessary. He will lead and guide you and provide for you as necessary as the work of God is uh, needed and required and He will provide at that point. We often talk in our board meetings here at the church, wouldn't it be nice if God just gave us a cushion? And then one of us wouldn't be, wouldn't it be nice if, we just, if God just gave us a dollar more, you know? It doesn't matter because after year, after year, after year, you know what? God always provides. 20 years later, we are still debt-free as a church. God has provided everything that we have needed above and beyond that. It's not on us. It's not my ability. It's not Chris's ability. It's not Joe's ability. It's God's ability. I don't want to be a self-reliant church. I want to be a spirit-dependent church. I once heard a pastor say something that was so memorable. I thought it was so profound. This pastor addressing a congregation of very wealthy and affluential people here in this area. He himself called to minister to an upper echelon of wealthy people in the society here in the Chicagoland area. And he was teaching on the verse in the Bible that states very clearly that the love of money is the root of all evil. 
He then went on to say that the love of money is the root of all evil because the love of money and money itself once provided and once an individual prospers gives that individual a false sense of sovereignty in their lives. A false sense of sovereignty that always leads to an independence from God. I thought that was so profound and so accurate and so true. Prosperity can destroy the work of God if it's not handled properly. We can become self-reliant. We can become self-sufficient. We can become self-centered and self-absorbed. And self then will dominate the church it's here and destroy it. Notice the indifference. Notice the failed perception of themselves. Notice the arrogance within this church to think that they were above God and had no need of Him. Probably not even realizing that God was on the outside looking in. Pleading that if there was anyone in that church, please open the door and I'll come in and dine with you. But there was no one. No one. And then he says, if anyone would overcome, though, they would sit with me on my throne. What a promise. The grace of God over and over and over again. As we've gone through these seven churches, at the end of each and every one of them, we were given this invitation to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. John Wolverd calls this a comprehensive warning in which the dangers of losing things are adequately described for us. Church of Ephesus, well, they lost their first love, even though they were still going through all the motion. Love for God and love for one another. In Smyrna, the fear of suffering began to discourage them, and Christ lifted them up. In Pergamum, the doctrinal compromise was apparent. In Thyatira, it was the moral compromise that did them in. In Sardis, they were just dead. In Philadelphia, the only failure that they could have is not to hold fast and to continue what they were doing and being faithful. But then we have this last church. And many believe that within the seven churches of Revelation, we, dis- we discover a scale, if you will, demonstrating the spiritual conditions of the church And the church of Laodicea would demonstrate the spiritual condition of the church prior to the return of Jesus Christ. I personally do not hold to that viewpoint. And the reason being is this. They are all independent churches that were being addressed here in the book of Revelation. And number two, here we are in the last days. And maybe the church in America with its prosperity is facing such trouble or in other places in the world where money is readily available. But you cannot tell me that this is indicative of all of the church around the world today. Because there are many who have nothing, and who are glorifying God with the little in which they have, and God is using them tremendously. No, I think that this is a specific problem that a specific church can have, and undoubtedly it is a problem that we are faced with here in the United States of America. The rise of self, the independency that it has created, and the prosperity, the bedrock from which all of this grows, all of that is a reality in our, in our nation, in our culture, and could 
affect the thinking of us as a church to think that we are self-reliant, that we are self-confident, and that we have a self-worth that tells us that we no longer need God. That's what we should be aware of. And so he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.